0: Medical plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain
0: Welcome to Pantsuit Politics, where a woman from the right and a
1: woman from the left accessorize the news with a fresh perspective. This is Sarah Holland from the left and Beth Silvers from the right. Welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are excited to have everyone with us. Um, We've had great contact with everybody online through Facebook and Twitter, and we absolutely love engaging with everybody. So if you haven't already, like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter. We're at Pantsuit Politics because Twitter stinks and it cut off our character limit. But that's where you can find us online. And as always, please give us great reviews on iTunes and subscribe. It helps other people find Pantsuit Politics.
0: We also want to encourage you to check out the book, The Selfie Vote, about how millennials are reshaping the electorate. This book is by Kristen Solstice Anderson. Kristen is um, a Republican strategist and pollster, has very interesting things to say about demographics and the way demographics are influencing the electorate. And I am so excited that she is going to be joining us in a couple of weeks. So we'd love for that episode to be a little bit like a book club where uh, we're able to have a discussion both during the podcast with her and then around the podcast with all of you online.
1: So we'll put a link to the book in the show notes and you guys can check it out.
0: I think you'll love it. I'm reading it and I like practically um, have my head fall on the floor because I'm nodding it so much. It's Really, really, really good. Yeah, I'm really
1: excited. I'm going to start it tomorrow.
0: So we're going to jump into... I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) Start over. Go ahead.
0: Okay. We're going to jump into the pearls now and um, just touch on, maybe not the most serious news ever, but Carly Fiorina had a tweet during the Rose bowl that is going to go down as like the Carly tweet all capitalized, I think um, because it was just such a, an error in judgment. So Carly is a Stanford alum. And as you may or may not know, I did not until I started following this tweet. Um, (laughs) She Stanford and Iowa were playing in the Rose bowl and Carly tweets, love my alma mater, but rooting for a Hawkeyes win today. (laughs) And this immediately was met with some of the most scathing uh, Twitter replies I've ever seen, followed very shortly by blog posts. And the reaction was just enormous, and clearly it was unacceptable pandering. I think people feel that sports are even more sacred. Like, you can pander about lots of things, but you can't pander about sports, I don't know what I was interested in about in about this was whether this backlash was more significant because it was directed at a female candidate than it might be at a male candidate. Sarah, what do you think about that?
1: I mean, my my presumption is always, yeah, they're getting an unfair. um, I I like to play the woman card as Donald Trump is um, so capable of threatening people for doing. So, yeah, I definitely think she got an unfair Reaction, especially because the more I think about it, the more it's it's so obviously pandering. I think she was probably joking. Like, I think that no one really believes she's not rooting for her alma mater anymore. So, I mean, I think she was making a little nudge-nudge Iowa joke, and it's
0: just a Twitter joke. I don't understand what the big deal is. She said that to Dana Bash today, um, so she was interviewed about this, and she said that it was tongue-in-cheek. Um, and, but then here's what she said that I did not like. She said, Oh, for heaven's sake, Dana, for heaven's sake, can't a girl have a little bit of fun? That to me does not sound like Carly Fiorina at all. <laughs> I, agree. So I did not love that aspect of it, but it was kind of uh fun and lightweight to start the new year with a little mini political scandal, I guess, even though you're right, it's just a tweet. It's just a tweet. Like we yeah. can all move on. There- Let's all calm down. So a little bit more significant is uh, the situation that's unfolding in Oregon right now, and we are uh, recording this podcast on Sunday night, so this situation could develop pretty substantially before our podcast is published. So here's what we know today. There is a militia group um, that has seized the headquarters of a federal wildlife refuge in in Oregon. They have... um, apparently quite the arsenal of weapons and are recruiting other people to join them there. This dispute is purportedly about land rights, which are becoming an increasingly big deal out West. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Sarah. I don't, I mean, land rights and eminent domain and all of that stuff sounds like first year law school to me. It doesn't sound like, Hey, let's grab our guns and occupy a federal building. Well,
1: I do. I mean, there's a long history of people doing this over similar issues, right? Those uh, other similar standoffs because people feel like they can build up arsenals and the government doesn't look kindly on that. (laughs) But I don't think this was mean. This wasn't about this wasn't. um, The tobacco and firearms people, though, this was something different. Right.
0: Yeah, this is an issue that I think. It, I mean, it's it looks like it's mostly about ranching. This this goes back to Cliven Bundy, um, who was arrested previously, and there there was a, these guys were arrested. There was an appeal. They were sentenced to longer term. Um, I need to do more research to get totally into the details of this story. But the the thing I want to say is this to me is an issue that so clearly should be. Funneled through our normal process. If you don't like this, run for office. Call your congressman. Like, this is, I, I don't understand a violent reaction over this.
1: Well, uh, I think it's safe to say, Beth, that these people might not share many of the same outlooks and philosophies that we do. I think that's uh,
0: a yeah, fair I point.
1: I don't think these people are looking for a reasonable solution. I think these people are looking for a revolution, and I don't think it's going to go their way. I'll just be real honest. They never yeah, do. Yeah.
0: I have some fear about this situation because the way they've used social media, I think these guys are looking for attention and mm-hmm. they're not getting it, which also concerns me because I read a lot of tweets today that said something to the effect of. Um, If these were African-Americans, black, if these were black Americans, if these were Muslim Americans, do you think this story would be all over the Sunday shows? And the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't. I mean, I think that the major networks coverage of this has been alarmingly inadequate. And my fear is that they're going to amp it up to get the kind of press they're looking for. Yeah.
1: But I hope I'm wrong. I,
0: I pray that I'm wrong.
1: Well, we'll closely watch this one for sure.
0: So now we're going to move on to the part of the pearls where we choose a person from the other side to pay a compliment. So Sarah, do you want to start us off?
1: Um, I'm going to start with John McCain. Um, I have always liked John McCain. Uh, for except for this small moment in time, particularly during the Republican primary when he ran for office when he was saying things that were completely out of character. I prefer the John McCain as frequent guest on the Daily Show. Um, I just think that he's um a smart, authentic, honest guy. I think that got lost a lot in the primary and the presidential campaign. I don't know why he picked Sarah Palin um as a running mate. I don't think that helped him, meaning but, you know, I hope and I think that John McCain's legacy will be much larger than some of his um, less than stellar decision making during the presidential run. Because overall, I think he's been a great senator and continues to be a great senator. And while I don't agree with every decision he makes, I think that he's a man of integrity.
0: Well, I want to compliment uh, Bernie Sanders. So another kind of pillar of the United States Senate. Um, mm-hmm. I really appreciate how Bernie has handled himself in terms of the sort of opposition research aspect of running for president. I like that he's had a number of opportunities to just really lay into Hillary Clinton. And he always conducts himself as a gentleman. And today, um, made several. he had several inquiries about whether sort of the, the Bill Clinton White House scandal years are relevant to this campaign and he keeps saying, like, we have bigger and more important things to talk about than Bill Clinton's sex life. And I just can't say Amen. I think he might have listened that.
1: to our podcast last week.
0: I'm hopeful that he did, but I I if he's did. listening again this week, thumbs up, Bernie. I appreciate yeah, how job, adult Ernie. you are about all this.
1: Keeps taking the high road at one time after the other.
0: He has I'm really it's a good example.
1: Yeah, and I think that it, it it speaks to his authenticity not only when he's you know. He wouldn't he wouldn't be the first to say and to do successfully the whole like, you know, small donations. It's a grassroots campaign. And that's I'm not not saying that's important, but I do feel like he by taking the high road in this way, he's doing something sort of new and refreshing that even, you know, President Obama didn't do when he was running against Hillary Clinton, didn't always take the high road. And so I really respect him for that.
0: He also I, I think this goes with, he really is a campaign of ideas. He is. I don't agree with any of those ideas, but he's not trying to be a celebrity. You know, he's mm-hmm. not trying to be a rock star. He just has these ideas and he really, despite believes them the Bernie
1: bros, best efforts. They're trying so hard to make him a rock star. Those Bernie bros.
0: It's just not what he's about. And, and mm-hmm. I, I like, I, I respect that about him very much.
1: Well, Beth, we've decided to kick off the new year in a big way. And up next in the suit, we're going to talk about abortion and reproductive rights. So
0: another so, example of how shy we are. And,
1: we're uh, Yeah, we're going to we're going to take it slow in 2016. We're yeah. going <laughs> to kick off the year with really, you know, only one of the most controversial issues in American politics and not just America worldwide.
0: Right. So Hopefully I, we can do this in a new way and a way that um, that feels like it has some value instead of just being sort of the same tired uh, back and forth. Of course, I,
1: I have faith in us.
0: Well, I'm gonna start, so we're each gonna
1: kind of say where we're coming from and then move forward from there. So i'm'll I'm gonna kick it off. I am pro-choice. I was raised conservat- conservative Southern Baptist, and so was passionately pro-life through high school until I got to um, college and became a women's studies minor and learned a lot of things that I felt fundamentally questioned my assumptions about abortion and women who choose to have abortions. Um, This was solidified when I graduated from college and worked at Planned Parenthood of Central North Carolina. I ran their emergency contraception hotline at the time. Emergency contraception was available only through prescription. So women would call into the hotline and I would take down their information and get them a prescription. I like to say that I prevented more abortions in that one year than most people will in their whole entire lives um, by preventing actual pregnancies. So, um, during my time at Planned Parenthood, I worked primarily in the office, but the office was attached to a clinic and we did trainings and I worked closely with women who, you know, my boss had been there since Roe v. Wade was overturned. And so I kind of saw a real life up close and personal look at the pro-choice movement. And, um, I, I, I think that it was primarily a political position at the time that I felt was supportive of a woman's right to choose and a woman's right to have control over her own body. I think that that decision and my thinking about abortion has grown in depth, but not changed in position since I've had my own children and particularly since I lost a pregnancy at 16 weeks. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that I always liked Anna Quinlan's quote that. Um, My position on abortion didn't change when I had children because I thought, no, this is something you really need to choose to do because it's so difficult. But I I think when you talk about abortion, there has to be two different discussions. And one is the um, legislative reality, the pragmatic reality of women will not have pregnancies and will not have babies that they do not want to have. My boss at Planned Parenthood once told me, you know, she said if I had a nickel for every woman who came up. Into this clinic with a cross around her neck, who said, "I don't believe in abortion, but I can't have this baby. I'd be rich." So I think that you know there will never be an end to abortion. Abortion has existed since the beginning of time, and it will continue to exist until the end of time. We can prevent it as best we can. I'm I'm a Clintonite to the core. Let's make it safe, legal, and rare. Um, but we the the laws duty is to deal with the reality of the situation. And the reality of the situation is that women are going to ha- going to want to end pregnancies. So I think that's the reality we have to deal with. And I think when you go to places like Texas and Mississippi and you eliminate those options, all you do is make it incredibly difficult for a certain class of women to get abortions. Everybody, It's a bit more difficult for everyone, but some people have resources and some, some people don't. And so it's really just a heavy tax on the poor in, you know, one more way with women with fewer options. And that makes me really sad. And I think that um, because what inevitably happens when you close abortion clinics, especially like Planned Parenthood, you're not only preventing people's access to abortion, you're also preventing their access to um, birth control and other reproductive options. So I think that that is one of my biggest beefs with the particularly hardcore um, pro-life movement, ignoring the people who try to end life in order to save life. I'm not, I am i don't even know where to begin with those people. But, you know, especially with something like Plan B, you know, not to get into the weeds on the, the cycle or the physical reality of Plan B, but the only reason they have to say that um, emergency contraception could harm a fertilized egg is because they can't prove that that will never, ever happen. But I'm not a scientist and so I'm comfortable saying that will never ever happen. Just because we can't put a camera in every uterus that will ever take plan B and promise people that it will never happen doesn't mean it's not gonna happen. And it's not. The only way you I mean, plan B works the sooner you get it. And you're you know, the so trying to prevent access to something like that is just increasing the likelihood that someone will have a pregnancy that they would then want to end. So you know, I'm, I'm a huge proponent of birth control and having access to that so that that's the, and that's the way you prevent abortion. Now, so that is all the my kind of stance on the reality of abortion, the pragmatic reality. I understand that there is a very um, emotional and heavy philosophical debate surrounding abortion. Um, I'm really comfortable saying I do not have the answer to that debate. I will not claim I know when life begins because I don't. And I am not trying to figure that out and prove that I'm right. So I think that it's an important debate to have. But I think really what happens is you have the rights of a fetus and the rights of a woman that are bumping up against each other. And, you know, in law school, that's what you kind of talk about a lot, that everybody has rights and that the conflict is and the decisions come in is when they they bump up against each other, you know, so. Um, as somebody who's carried (laughs) three pregnancies to term and one to 16 weeks, I'm not going to argue that what I was carrying was just a clump of tissue. I don't believe that. Um, but I'm also not going to argue that it was, um, a fully firm life deserving of the same rights that I have because I don't believe that either. And in the same way that, you know, I felt the pain I felt at a miscarriage was different and distinct from the pain I felt at a 16 week pregnancy loss. You know, I think the rights of a fetus are different depending on the stage of development. And, but I, but for me, philosophically, the rights of the woman are always more important. So, I don't think it's an easy debate, and I say, like, this is one of the things from my conservative Baptist past that I can easily tap into and understand where people are coming from, but just because it's difficult and we can't find this um, easy answer or this black and white answer doesn't mean that we shouldn't continue to talk about this in a respectful way. Um, my very best friend is a devout Catholic and passionately pro-life. And we talk about it often and we have really productive, great discussions. I remember, you know, we've been friends for since 1999. I don't even want to do the math. A very long time. And we were talking about it, not probably six or eight months ago. And she said something so, that I still keep thinking about. She said, we were talking about, you know, kind of the fetus and the life and this philosophical debate. And I said, well, you know, whether it's a life. And she said, well, it is alive, even if we don't think it's a life. And I thought that was really like, she's like, in the same way, you know, every cell you have is alive. So it is alive, even if it's not a life. And so, you know, I thought that was such a very insightful way to put it and to kind of think about it in a different way that I had not thought about it before. Um, But at the end of the day, I think the philosophical discussion is important, but I don't think there's an answer. And I think the law has to deal with the reality. And the reality is that women need abortions and they will continue to need abortions. And that's the world we live in. And that's why I'm pro-choice. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, com
0: If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash you for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjun dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. So I'll start on the philosophical side. I similarly think that it is very difficult. I do believe that life begins at conception, but I believe that it is life that is dependent on the mother and it's physically dependent. It's in my view, emotionally, spiritually in every way, dependent on the mother for some period of time. And so what happens from there philosophically for me is contextual You know, I think that there are situations where um, abortion is wrong. I do. I believe there are situations where abortion is maybe the only humane option, depending on the kind of situation that the child would be brought into otherwise. All of those opinions are bound up in my personal beliefs about God and the universe and what's right and wrong. And so knowing that that is the makeup of my philosophical debate, I switch over to the legislative side and I say, I'm a small government Republican. I don't want anyone making decisions for me that are bound up in their own views of God and the universe Mm -hmm. and what's Mm -hmm. right and wrong. And I have to be a small government Republican, even when that means an outcome that is not my favorite outcome. You know, I think sometimes mm-hmm. on the conservative side, we say, well, we're small government if it means these programs that we don't support coming from the government. Now, we have to mean that about this this issue, too. So we can say morally, ethically, I don't love what's happening here, but that doesn't give me the right to decide it. Government should stay out of that, just like government should stay out of whatever our other issues are.
1: Mm-hmm. So...
0: I also agree that pragmatically abortions are going to happen. So they should be safe and legal and rare. As you said that that's where I come out. Now I, I struggle with some of the language around abortion from the pro-choice community about how, you know, we need to, I don't believe in shaming anyone. I do believe mm-hmm. that it's okay. I, you know, I read a piece and I should have pulled it up before the show. I read a piece not too long ago about how it, it doesn't serve women to talk about abortion as a difficult decision. I can't get myself there. I think it should be a difficult decision for anyone. And it, it's a difficult issue that said, and and maybe, and maybe I'm imposing my own belief system by saying that too. I just feel that legislatively we have a decision from the Supreme court that says what it says We have a reality that you cannot talk about this issue without bringing your own sense of ethics, whatever they are, to it. So I don't think this is something that should be restricted by the government.
1: Yeah. And that's what when you said that, when you said the first thing I thought when you said. I think some sometimes the decision to have an abortion is wrong. And the first thing I thought is. Yeah, but do you know who wants to decide that, you know, do we really want the government deciding who's right and who wrong and who deserves an abortion and who doesn't, you know, no, I don't exactly. And I think that that's in my I wrote a post about this on my blog and I said, you know, we elevate the woman's choice and we elevate her decision because we're acknowledging that no one is better equipped to deal with that than her. You know, it might not be the decision you made, but it has to be the decision she would make based on the on the tools and the situation available to her. And so, because again, because what's all the alternative, what's the alternative, you know, a a government committee who wants to sign up for that, who are we going to put on that committee that gets to decide who gets abortions and who doesn't. Well, and that
0: goes back to sort of the whole death panel idea that conservatives mm -hmm. made um, a real issue around the affordable care act. And so, you know, I, I, I can't reconcile, an aggressively pro-life legislative agenda with my other beliefs about what government should and should not be. Mhm. Mhm. I know.
1: I mean, I think that, and I, and more importantly, I'm just not sure. I, I I don't understand how you don't acknowledge that even if you the government takes an aggressively pro-life stance, that that actually. Prevents abortion it prevents safe abortions i mean i remember watching a documentary one time where this woman was like this pro life mississippi woman was like i want to live to see an end to pr- abortion in mississippi that's not a thing that's not no. you that's not going to happen that's not a reality of the world that we live in in which you pr- you end all abortion i'm sorry it's not it's never going to happen it's just not it's ha- you know it's, it's since the beginning of time and it will continue to the end of time if you know the truth of the matter is too and the one thing I do think that's problematic is when we tie the philosophical um, issues up with this it can seep over into other medical decisions the truth is that when I lost my baby at 16 weeks I had an abortion I had a D and E I had a dilation and evacuation that's a medical procedure that's done And abortions. Okay, so we can you we can call it something else, but that's what the doctor did. She, you know, that's what happened. And so I'm really glad that my doctor knew how to do that. But I'll tell you what, there were several doctors that didn't, that wouldn't, that the doctor I started with and another doctor I went to, couldn't do, didn't have that skill. And there's a part of me that wonders, you know, how much does this debate come into how willing doctors are to be trained in this for this procedure? Um, you know, like if I'd been at a Catholic hospital, I don't know what the rules would have been. So it's like, you know, this, this, it all gets very complicated. It's not just as simple as, you know, who can do the, you know, we don't want people having abortions. It's just not that simple. It never is.
0: It's not that simple. We cannot criminalize everything we do not agree with. We cannot Mm -hmm. legislate ourselves into the society we wish we had. We just can't. Mm -hmm. Now, all that said, since I think that we agree that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, I thought it might be interesting to focus on a path forward that gets to that rare point, Um, because to me, there is a lot of pro-life work to be done, but it's on the positive side instead of the negative side.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I actually, when we talk about, I always, when I worked at Planned Parenthood, thought, man, I wish Planned Parenthood would say, okay, we're pro-choice across the board. And so we're going to open up birth centers and we're going to really advocate for healthy pregnancy and birth.
0: Yeah, I think pregnancy and birth, we're just really doing ourselves disservices by the way we talk about these things and facilitate them right now. You know, we've made pregnancy adorable as a culture, right? And so I think any time you have an experience of pregnancy that's real, it's not so adorable. Well, it's, and we make it in a community.
1: You make it, you feel that when you're pregnant, that you're community property. I mean, underneath all of this is the idea that everybody, I mean, it's not to go all handmaid's tail on this situation, which both of us read our freshman year, Tracy, but I think that it, it feel there's this ownership of women's body and their reproduction is. And I think that's, you know, a lot of times what pro-choice people are reacting to, but it's there. We're not making it up. I mean, you feel, I, f- I felt like community property the entire time I was pregnant. People felt like they could comment on my choices, on my body, on everything.
0: Well, and I think any anytime we say something like, look at that baby bump or whatever, we're sending a message to men that isn't this cute and fun and what a great life experience. Yeah. And you got to be pregnant to be able to talk about what pregnancy is in a real way. And even a perfect pregnancy, it's, it's just not all adorable. And I think this sort of cutification or something, if I can say that really diminishes the societal perspective on what you're asking a woman to do by carrying a baby to term. And similarly, I think we have made birth this kind of nightmarish medical procedure. And that's also not accurate. You know, I think birth can be if you have a birth in the way that you really understand and imagine having a birth, it it can be a super empowering experience instead of something to be terrified of.
1: I mean, that you you and I come from similar situations with natural birth and that's a that's exact though you took the words out of my mouth, that's what I tell people is I wanted I wanted to feel leave the situation feeling empowered instead of traumatized. And I think that's gets lost so often in that. And so that I mean that's kind of was my original thought is I just thought like how great would it be if Planned Parenthood could advocate for this. But the truth is they're a little busy in a little strapped energy and money wise defending their, their current turf before they expand onto other turf.
0: But I think this would be a good place for pro-life groups to funnel resources, to, to help mm-hmm. women really understand the reality of both. Pregnancy is maybe worse than we talk about it. Birth is better than we talk about it. You need to just know what's real going into both. And this gets to the next area where I think pro-life groups should give attention, which is the way we educate people about sex. And I don't think that should start in like a high school class where we have a big fight about abstinence only education. I think it should start very early in terms of emotional intelligence, the way we relate to other humans. I feel like we're missing just a whole segment of development in the way we educate currently I don't, I'm not an expert on education. I don't know what curriculum, you know, would result from what I'm talking about. But it seems to me that if you start earlier in life on sort of here, here I am as a whole person, here's what my body means to me. Here's how I relate to other people and make sense of the world. And you kind of move that along. And I'm not talking about religion um, or anything that truly should be done at home, but just general um, self-esteem, social skills, all the things that you need to be a complete person, which let's face it, not everybody does get at home. I mean, those are hard things. I I try yeah. to be a good parent and I study a lot about being a good parent and I'm still not sure I have those answers. So well, how can this we really, supplement that in school?
1: Yeah, there's this really awesome movement called sex positive education that is not sex is scary, don't have sex. Because first of all, they know we're lying. And second of all, they don't listen anyway. So, you know, it's this very kind of let's talk about real issues with consent, which gets messed totally and completely when we're all our emphasis is on sex is scary. Don't have sex Um, and how to communicate with a partner and all these different things that says, you know, sex is a positive thing. But let's talk about how you can do it safely. And not just safely, you don't get pregnant and you don't get STDs, but safe emotionally and safe psychologically. And I think that's amazing. What really bugs me in the discussion about sex education, and truthfully, I think there's an undercurrent of it in even the abortion debate and really a lot of reproductive discussions, is this kind of we're willing to sacrifice one kind of life for a life we find that we like better. So we're willing to sacrifice a woman for a sweet little baby. And we're willing to sacrifice the mother, even like in in the discussions about birth, we're willing to discuss it to sacrifice the mother's outcomes in a birth procedure, just because all that matters is the healthy baby. And all these different things. And what bugs bugs me about sex education is there's this undercurrent of, well, we're not going to talk about sex because it could encourage the good kids to have sex. Like, we know bad kids, quote unquote, are having sex. Like, we all acknowledge that, that kids are having sex younger and younger. But we don't really can't deal with that because we don't want to risk tainting the good kids, which is really disturbing to me. If we know kids are having sex younger and younger and that concerns us, then we need to deal with that. And we need to talk about that and we need to educate those kids and give them birth control and just do some triage first and foremost before we worry about quote unquote the good kids. I mean, as a quote unquote Baptist good kid that didn't have sex for a very long time and took all that virginity stuff very seriously, the reasons people don't have sex are complex and it doesn't, it's not just because there are or are not condoms laying around. So I just feel like I really hate that kind of what I feel like is what people are really saying when they say, well, we can't talk about sex in school and we can't pass out condoms because then everybody will be having sex. And what you really mean is, the kids we really value will be having sex and we care about them.
0: I think though, that a lot of what you said gets to my point, which is sex does not exist in isolation for women. I can't mm-hmm. speak about that as a man because I'm not one, but <laughs> sex for women is always complex. The decision to have it, to not have it, how you feel about it? All of it. And that's why I think we need a larger, kind of emotional discussion beginning very early on with kids because even the quote good kids are choosing pretty destructive relationships in a lot of context. Yeah. How many 4.0 high school girls have abusive boyfriends? Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there are a lot of choices being made that are not healthy relationship choices.
1: And, well, and it's so hard, too, though, because we're not just talking about relationship level or even family level. You have a whole society that sends some <laughs> really mixed messages about
0: sex. Absolutely. So I I think there's kind of a, a more comprehensive approach to emotional intelligence, relationships generally, and then at appropriate times, in appropriate ways, sex in schools would be extremely helpful.
1: Well, and I think what's so hard for me when I talk about sex education and pregnancy and abortion is, you know, as a feminist, there's this really difficult line to walk between promoting self-empowerment and saying, we want you to take responsibility and we want to have these really positive experiences, but also acknowledging that there is a bigger system at work here and there is a system that does not value women's bodies and that seeks to violate women's bodies and it's not you know it's not just you know like I just really it's so hard with when you talk about this stuff not to just kind of hoist it all on the individual and say you know beef up your self-work and try harder because there's bigger issues here there's really you know violence against women and sexual violence against women I posted an article recently about a woman who got raped and she said you know I was out drinking and I was out late by myself, but the and I was being stupid. But the punishment for stupid is not sexual assault, and so you know I think that the under there is an a bigger undercurrent here that all the better sex positive education is not going to address. Well, I don't know. That's not really maybe that's not true if you got to kids young and really talked about this. But I think that there is an undercurrent in our society of violence towards women's bodies and. Un, you know, not valuing women's bodies that is really important and is hard to think about and hard to talk about and certainly hard to address in a positive way. But it's 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 a seam running through all these discussions that really, I think, has to be talked about.
0: And women contribute to these problems as well. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's something I've been thinking a lot about lately, because um, I, I see these discussions so the same sense of control that gets exercised by people who want to prevent all abortion uh, then seems to later manifest in things like, so we want you to be a mother so badly, but then don't breastfeed in public. <laughs> you know there there are just lots of the shame spiral just seems to get mm-hmm. larger and larger, um, and then we're going to criticize the way that you're parenting, and then we're going to talk about how you can't have it all by being both a mother and having a career outside the home. I mean, it's just it is a but big, you better
1: try because that's the only ring you br- you bring value to the table. Yeah. That's the only
0: thing we value food for. I mean, it it is it is really complex and layered, and um, and I do think that so much of it. Uh, comes down to shame and sort of the, the way that we experience first our own bodies and our own feelings. I know that sounds like I can see my husband rolling his eyes right now at me. Um, (laughs) and that's okay. I mean, I understand that, but I think until we get to those issues and get to them early, 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 early. Uh, And I don't mean teaching about sex in kindergarten, clearly, you know, this is just about relationships and and people and your own sense of self and the way that you. Well, I'm sure you
1: have two little girls, so you think about this a lot. I
0: mean, they they talk about all these
1: like body negatives things start coming up as young as like 10 or 5. I mean, it's always it seems like the number gets lower and lower every year.
0: I think constantly about how I talk about diet in front of my my daughter who's almost five about exercise, about my own body. I mean, she has questions about everything Mm -hmm. and it's so hard. Like when I was um, pregnant and now that I'm after pregnant, you know, she'll make comments about my belly a lot. Mom, your belly's so big. And Mm -hmm. and I have to check myself from having a negative reaction to that. Right. So I've tried to teach myself to just be neutral. Like, yes, it is. That's what's happening right now. And that's fine. (laughs) And that is, Unbelievably difficult, but I do feel like that is contributing to, I hope, a healthier sense of self for her than the one I had. And look, this isn't everybody gets a trophy crap. This is, I respect myself and I'll demand that other people respect me. And hopefully, because of that, I'll make good choices that put me in loving relationships where if I get pregnant, it's because I wanted to. And if I didn't want to, I at least can look at the situation and know that if I choose to carry the child to term, that's my best option and I'll be supported in it. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a different world than the one we live in now. And that is a much better place to direct our resources than trying to wear out a Supreme Court decision or get around it with a bunch of weird regulations. Well, and all those,
1: and all those regulations send the same message, which is, we do not trust you to make this decision. Right. You need to be here longer. You need to talk to the father. You need to talk to your parents. You need to talk to a doctor. You need to come up, come back. I mean, every single one is. We do not trust you to make this decision. And that is problematic. It's, you know, we talk about this sometimes with the political environment that is created by the things we say. Well, what kind of environment does it create when we pass laws like that? because it doesn't just affect the women being, you know, it, that implies that they don't, that the law doesn't trust, but it affects everybody who lives in an environment in which the government is saying over and over again, we don't trust women to make decisions about their bodies. And so, I mean, I think that that is just such a heavy, dangerous message to send instead of let's support everybody so everybody can make the be- best decision they can. You know, and so that's what that's what sex education and that's what real healthcare support and real birth control and f- reproductive rights do is it supports everyone and you know i wish that we all lived in a world where everybody was in loving relationships and everybody had all the resources i mean but that's just it's just not the world we live in and that's the one we have to deal with
0: sarah and i have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible and skincare is a huge piece of that What we can say right now is that just as a a certain group of voices say to mothers, we don't trust you to make these choices. Mothers justifiably, I think, look around at their options if they choose to carry a child to term, but not raise that child and don't trust those options. Mm
1: -hmm. Our foster
0: care system, our adoption Mm -hmm. systems... It's crazy right now. And this is another area where I think our pro-life resources would be better directed. Give people a real choice. So carrying a child to term is a is a huge traumatic matter. And as we said before, I think we need to talk a lot more realistically about what that means. Mm-hmm. But if you're willing to do that, I think most people's larger concern is the long-term health and well-being of a child. I don't know today if I were staring at this decision, I could say this child would be better off in foster care. I'm pretty sure I couldn't. Now there are some wonderful, amazing foster parents out there. The system itself is, is very scary to me. Well, and I'd be interested to know if
1: anyone has studied the effect of like long-term maternity care. So let's say if you have if you can't take care of you decide to give your baby up for adoption, but you know that you have paid maternity c- coverage that you'll you won't lose your job if you have to go on bed rest, if you have, you know, if if you have all the support that makes the the particularly the economic impact with the medical care of pregnancy smaller, if that would, you know, in countries that do that, if that helps the adoption rate, if women are saying, okay, well, the physical reality of pregnancy won't be as won't be as difficult because of, you know, better healthcare and real maternity and, or real prenatal care and prenatal leave of some type, if that affects the decision at all. I mean, I'd be interested to know. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think that's the only thing that weighs on people's decision when they choose to give their baby up for adoption, but, um, I think it has to be a part of it. You know, even if you want to do that, if you're going to lose your job, if you are pregnant, you're going to lose your job, you know?
0: Yeah. You touched on the other factors that occur to me always, just the way we support families, you know, the, Mm -hmm. the, the way that it impacts you professionally to be pregnant, the way it impacts you professionally to have children, um, the way it impacts you in every way, um, to breastfeed or to just Mm -hmm. parent. All around, I just sit back and say if every dollar currently being spent within the pro life movement to fight Roe versus Wade was diverted to something that intends to either prevent unwanted pregnancies or support women who carry a child to term in some way, would we not minimize the number of babies aborted? And isn't that Mm -hmm. the goal? Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
1: I mean, if you because that's really it's probably even less of a a factor when you're talking about adoption. But when you're choosing abortion at all, I mean, if some of the biggest factors are you can't afford the child, you can't afford the medical care. I mean, because there's no government support. I mean, no government supported daycare or paid family leave or any of these things in other industrialized nations. And I don't know how something like France or Sweden's. Abortion rate compares to ours, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say they're probably lower.
0: And look, I don't think that should all come from the government. I mean, that again is where I come back to, but we have a huge number of people spending a lot of money in this country to fight this problem. Get mm-hmm. creative, come up with some good ideas. We And let me you know, let me say though, the,
1: these crisis pregnancy centers are not my idea, <laughs> not, n- not a long-term solution. Diapers and even a, the first year of support is not going to get you through raising a kid. Right.
0: No, we. I mean, we need a lot of resources. We need to kind of go back to the drawing board, I think, mm-hmm. on how we handle this entire situation. But it can be done. And what a more productive use of our energy. You know, If if our goal really, if this is about what it's supposed to be about, if the goal really is to prevent abortion, then tackle it in the way that it's going to be effective. That's my All argument.
1: Right. Well, and I think you have to... I'm not saying this for all the pro-life mo- mo- movement, op, obviously. Um, but I do think for some hardcore pro-life activist, it's not just about, you know, saving babies, quote unquote. I think there is an undercurrent of controlling women. I do. I think that that is part of it, the motivation, consciously or unconsciously, that that is fueling some of that. Because it's not... It's such an incendiary debate and the the tactics are taken are so violent and so just offensive that it's not, it's not a simple debate. And I also don't really understand. I mean, I don't think anybody is persuaded by giant placards of aborted fetuses. I don't, I just really don't understand where they're trying to get at with that.
0: I don't think minds are changed in this area. No, Um, if they are, it is a long, slow process. It's not a bumper sticker change. So this is another thing. It's like everything we talk about on our show. When you get into us versus them, you're stuck. And that's where Mm -hmm. we are right now. And I think here, if you just say, look, what we want is fewer abortions. Let's talk about how to make that happen. Perhaps outside of the legislative process, then maybe we Mm -hmm. get to a good result. Well, Mm -hmm. since minds won't change. I think we can move on, and we're going (laughs) to take up something much, much lighter in heels.
1: So we're going to talk about our favorite Christmas presents that we received
0: this holiday season. Do you want to start, Beth? Sure. Well, first I'll say that it is a gift to us that you hung with us through a discussion about abortion (laughs) because we know that (laughs) is a tough one, but, you know, we we had to do it. Um, We had to do it. Sarah, I remember a lot in college you talking about your now husband, Nicholas, um, who then you had first started dating and you would walk around all the time and you would like put your index finger up and be like, Nicholas is a genius. You said it all the time. I'll never forget it. I'm happy to report that similarly, I married a genius who always does something unexpected and delightful with my gifts. And so this year was no exception. So I get this enormous box under the tree. He walked around, first of all, for a couple of days talking about how he had won Christmas. And I tried to tell him that Christmas is not a thing to win. But anyway, so giant box. That right is there. wrong
1: because we all know I won Christmas with my Christmas pudding. So we're going to have to, you're wrong there. You're, I won Christmas and I think your husband won Christmas. So
0: he thinks he won Christmas. Well, I guess everybody can get a Christmas trophy. How about that? Okay. <laughs> so I open the box and there's this tiny little um, black gadget in it that I do not recognize. And then there is an index card that has layers and layers of post-it notes on it. And so the first post-it note says, hello, And then the second they, like they go on and I'm sensing some Adele lyrics, but I can't tell exactly what's happening. And then it instructs me to turn on little black device that I do not recognize. And I do. And hello, blast Adele's voice all through our house. So Anyway, he got me tickets to see Adele in Detroit, which I am super, super stoked about. And I love the way he gave it to me. And I also felt really embarrassed to find out that we owned that little black speaker for like months before Christmas. And (laughs) I just didn't know that we had it or what it did. I mean, it it could have launched, you know, a, a rocket ship to space for all I knew. I had no idea what it was, but it was delightful and really fun. And I am super excited to see Adele.
1: It is taking every ounce of willpower I have not to sing hello right now. Maybe we'll have Nicholas mix it in post-production. I
0: think that would be good. It also Just makes so me, as our Christmas
1: present to all our listeners, they can sing it for the rest of the day. It
0: also makes me <laughs> just want to get a manicure, you know?
1: Oh, she does. She has, and, you know, Barbara Streisand's big on the nails and the hands, She just too. rocks
0: those nails.
1: I just think that – is that a thing? Like, they have to do that? I don't know. So what was your favorite gift this year? So my favorite gift this year was um, – not near as creative and exciting or even a surprise because I said, this is what I want for Christmas. <laughs> and so my husband went on and bought it. Um, was a heated mattress pad. But it brings me so much joy. I can't even tell you. That would bring me joy too.
0: <laughs> oh, my God. I
1: turn it on and then I go wash my face and I brush and floss my teeth. My bed is so warm when I get inside, and it's just amazing, and I love it so much. The other day, I turned it on to high. It was really cold, and I just sat in bed and worked all day. Does it? I just was like, that's my office.
0: Does it last, like, all night until you turn it off, or is it like the heated seat in a car that, like, fades after some time?
1: Well, first of all, I should say it's dual zone. Mm, That's important. Nicholas controls his separately. Um, But... No, like usually I'll put. I mean, it'll stay high. It won't fade. If it's on high, it's going to stay at high. But like I turn, I'll either turn it off or turn it all the way down for the rest of the night. Because like once you're in bed, that's different. It's just getting into cold bed. And your feet are cold. It's cold outside. It's awful. And now it's mine. It's so cozy. I just love it. Is it hard to get up?
0: Well, yeah, I would think so. It's
1: so hard. But it's hard to get up anyway in the winter.
0: Well, another gift to us is that all of you listen to us. We just get so excited every time we hear from someone who is listening. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you to Sarah's husband, Nicholas, the genius, for being our executive producer. He does a fantastic job for us. Um, and Sarah will tell you about our music, and we will see you during our next episode.
1: Our intro, interstitial, and outro music is Fourth and Starlight Road Instrumental by Minden and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial